Welcome to the Design Your Happiness podcast. I'm your host, Marilee Blair. Let me be your positive light to help you reach your highest potential and put you in an empowered frame of mind every episode. It's time to get excited for our lives and be in charge of designing our happiness every single day. Let's go. Welcome back to the Design Your Happiness podcast. I'm extremely excited to have a very sharp and knowledgeable guest on the show today who's going to educate you on the importance of creating a financial plan to guide your future. Devin Deverell has been a financial advisor with Northwestern Mutual for over 11 years in San Diego. He has helped me, my husband, and all of our successful friends build financial portfolios that align with our financial goals. Devin and his Northwestern Mutual team's mission is to help clients across the country visualize and accomplish what financial security ultimately means to them. He works with clients to grow and protect what they care about most, as the chances are financial planning and security might be something different to you than the person you are sitting across from. By matching his clients' needs with innovative investment and insurance planning, he can confidently help them navigate through the many challenges and opportunities of life. Some of the key things Devin can help clients with are financial planning, investment planning, insurance planning, retirement planning, business planning, estate planning, executive and employee benefits, and education funding. Devin, thank you so much for being here on the show today. And yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so welcome to the show. Let's start the show with your favorite inspiring quote. Oh, I was thinking about this. And, uh, you know, I think that the the inspiring quote is almost a mantra to me right now. And I was exposed to it really three months ago, just right after this whole situation, mm-hmm. the pandemic had started was a phrase called kiss your life, mm-hmm. kiss your life. And it could be said and used in a lot of different ways. And I think one of them that is mantra like to me is when things are, are going great in your life or not so great in your life, it's a good one to remind yourself uh, in terms of gratitude on where you're at and be appreciative of what you have. Um, and I think some of it backs into, you know, we all know people that are, are probably struggling right now in many different lights and uh, to be appreciative of what you have in your own health right now is a pretty big deal. So kiss your life is, is really the phrase or mantra or quote that stands out to me right now. Yeah. I love that. Embracing what we do have, enjoying everything that we do have to be grateful for. And gratitude is so important to focus on right now, even though like you're saying, it's true, it's a hard time, but there's still always a silver lining and things to be grateful for. And you're right. Our health is the number one thing to be grateful for right now and to have another day of life and, you know, to be able to have opportunities like this that, you know, we can do things like this. I, I think well said, yeah. Case in point, you know, being here right now, this is a huge opportunity, you know, for us just to, to connect and, and share some time and, and energy with each other. Yeah. So thank you again for being part of this. Yeah, my pleasure. And let's talk about how have you designed happiness into your life? Good question. So I think one of the things for me as an individual, happiness in my life uh, is backed into this thought of, of how creative I'm being with my time. And so specifically, you know, people get their dopamine hits and serotonin hits, you know, in many different forms and ways, but doing it in a healthy way and having a bunch of different things 
that create that happiness for me that are creative outlets uh, are, are really important structuring on a day in day out basis. So an example might be when I wake up in the morning and all this isn't to talk about headspace or any of these, these different apps out there, but some type of guided meditation for me has been really helpful to build into my life prior to everything that's going on right now. And that helps set the tone mentally for me. That is a creative space to get my mind jogging in the morning. So having some of these routines, whether it be meditating, surfing, your own workouts, these physical outlets are great, but then also things like playing music, painting. These are all things that all of us could do, especially with time that we have right now. Uh, those are all creative, creative ways to back into how I'm spending my time and enjoying mm -hmm. my time right now. Yeah. And designing your happiness, yeah? Just focusing on what you love and doing that. Yeah, the, the design of happiness at the end of the day, I think really is a function of how creative you could be in mm -hmm. your life for me, you know? And when I don't get that feeling um, of being creative, you know, it, it's really in search of, of doing that or being around people that elicit some of that out of you. And I think that that's a, a unique one to talk about and think about is, you know, not just what five books are the ones that are sitting on your, your coffee table or which ones you last read, mm -hmm. but who are those five people that you spend the most time with? And uh, that backs into creating that happiness and that best version of yourself as well. Yes. Being around like-minded people, mm -hmm. being around the campfire. Yeah. yeah. Being around yeah. like-minded people. And interestingly enough too, I think to add on to that, to think about, for instance, Abraham Lincoln's presidency, he mm -hmm. surrounded himself with a cabinet that were of opposite minded people, mm -hmm. but he still respected. So sometimes having those characters in your life too, mm -hmm. that maybe are not just like-minded, but very different in their thought process, but you respect them as an individual. So you're intrigued by them. You want them in your life and they bring about different thoughts that you, you may not have ever really come across in your own path in life if you weren't mm -hmm. exposed to them. Right. So yeah. that way you can learn from them too. Yeah. And then kind of take those skills from that person and put it into your own life. Very much so. You know, as yeah. you build your own story. Yeah. 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 And so um, it's funny because that actually ties into this because I feel that, you know, for me personally, I feel like I didn't know so much about, you know, how to prepare for my future. And so that's why I'm so excited for Devin to be here because of all the knowledge that he has with different investments. And so I just feel like I didn't know a lot of that before I had met you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm so excited because you have Good educated time. me so much and so many of our friends. And it's just, it's nice to be educated on this because it's so important for our generation and for everyone to be prepared for the future and to have a set type of financial plan. You know, you don't want to, you need to be prepared. And so um, now let's talk into how you started your financial, financial advising business yeah. and, you know, how you got into the industry. It's a funny question to me to be asking right now, given, you know, the environment, because as most people know, we're here in August right now of 2020 mm -hmm. in the capital market space, the stock market free fell in March. And back when I came in this business, I interned in 2009. So mm -hmm. I graduated from USD with an economics and philosophy degree. And I knew I wanted to run my own business. I didn't know roots wise where that was going to back into. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that I was interning at a financial company, Northwestern Mutual. Mm -hmm. And I had a great experience in the internship, but I didn't know any different. The market was uh, free falling as it was here over the last few months. 
And I thought, I want to run my own business and I get a chance to be creative. And I know a little bit about finance, or at least I thought I did enough to jump into the space with some confidence and let it fly. I mean, it only in as a retrospective in hindsight, I look back at it now, what a similar time it is today for somebody to come into this business. You almost had nothing to lose at that time, just like you have at this time if you're coming into a business. And I think that that's much bigger than starting your own financial practice. It really is, I think, a commentary for all those business owners out there. What do you have to lose right now? Nothing. I mean, it's not going to get much worse in terms of an opportunity to start. But in some ways, depending on your lens, it's not going to get any better. And that's the lens that I had, even though there was that language or that thought process out there that now in hindsight, we think about 2008, 2009. It's like, oh my gosh, that was so scary. Well, for me, I didn't know any better. And so I was interning at a financial firm and I rolled the dice and that's how I got started to be very honest, you know, about that answer. Yeah. And you got really passionate about it too, because you were interning. So you got to learn a lot more. I think the passion for finance the science of financial planning came mm-hmm. later. So I originally went to art school to paint up in San Francisco. And I had ended up coming out of USD with an economics and philosophy degree. So right. I ditched art school and came out with actual degrees. So I knew I wanted to have something as my own business where mm-hmm. I could control or create what the content was and really, mm-hmm. uh, really create those great relationships. That was artistic to me. And I was interested in running a business. It just so happened that finance, if we think about it in like Mm. art, business, finance, finance just happened to be that one that I had an opportunity to be creative with. And so as, you know, my practice has grown, as we've worked with many people here, not just in San Diego and Southern California, but around the country, we've gotten uh, a lot of different looks on Mm. how to make sure we're addressing financial planning. And there is an art to it. You know, and that was most attractive to me, but there certainly is a science to it. And um, that has only come over time, that passion for it. I wouldn't say that I had a passion out of the gates of following the stock market as a kid. You know, it's like, you know, I think I was more interested in hanging out at the beach and, you know, surfing. But uh, yeah, now there is a passion. It came later on. And I think that that's an interesting takeaway in itself because sometimes you just follow the direction that is warm and you know that over the hillside there, that that's a nice color that you're moving towards. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know that over there, that's an area that's cold and maybe a darker area that you don't want to follow. And that is just as helpful to know that area uh, is knowing what you really want to do. If you know what you don't want to do, then you can move towards something that's a little warmer and maybe that passion then develops as you're tracking and getting closer to that color or warm space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can tell too, 11 years later, like you, you couldn't foresee that. Couldn't you know, foresee that. Yeah. And it's, it's, interestingly enough, still running my practice yeah. happily through the same company that I signed my contract with mm. when I was 20 years old, wow. 20 years old interning. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. great. It's yeah. great though, because the other thing to know about Devin is he really helps you with your personal goals. And so, you know, there's, I remember before I had met Devin, I had interviewed a lot of financial advisors and I felt like they were more trying to sell their products without really knowing how to build my financial plan, how to build my financial independence as a woman. And I mean, and that's for anyone. And so 
when I had met Devin, he was referred to me by friends and my now husband. And, and that says a lot too, um, because they really respected you, but it's also because you built a relationship with all of us and you build a relationship with all your clients to understand our individual goals and what we're trying to accomplish financially for our futures, because we all have different goals, you know, for finances, for our futures. And, you know, that comes with, if you lose a job or if you're planning to have kids or if you're buying a house. And so Devin helps with all of that, depending what your future goal is with your finances. Yeah. And I I think uh, what a, what an insightful, um, I've never heard you say that before, but that's insightful for, for me to hear and and digest because I think in uh, a relationship and working on somebody's finances, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of other industries that are like this too, that you can be uh, very quantitative in nature or very product oriented. But oftentimes I think what people desire most over the long run is more of that emotional quotient, Mm -hmm. right? Where there's a relationship that you're backing into and that EQ or, or, you know, uh, relationship quotient, if you will, it doesn't happen in a split second. It does take some time. And uh, I think that that over time, You know, when you work with those relationships, you fast forward five, six, seven, maybe 10 years from now, and you look back on that, less of the conversation tends to be about finance. Mm -hmm. The lead indicator and deciding what financial instruments we use is understanding what the heck is going on in somebody's life, actually. And that then dictates what instruments we go into the toolkit and figure out a solution with versus the other way around. Not one's necessarily right or wrong, but that's definitely Mm -hmm. from an art standpoint where I like to back in, where my team focuses first on is really on that relationship quotient first. And that's important. And we all need that. And so um, let's talk about, because you're so good at building relationships with your clients and their goals, do you feel that, is it better for someone to have a financial advisor or do you feel it's okay for people to plan their financial investments on their own? Which Uh, do you think is better? What a relevant question right now <laughs> as uh, online robo advising is a, is a, is a real thing and a real, real topic out there. Um, <clears throat> I think it could be done both ways. Actually. I don't think that you need a financial advisor or a mm-hmm. human being to make sure that your picture looks great, but there are a lot of, I think, benefits that come from working with a human being. And I think, uh, some of, uh, the, the thought process out there on working with an advisor, it backs into accountability, you know, and having accountability as a human being, when we think about mm-hmm. financial psychology, a lot of things, if left to, to our own devices, people take the path of least resistance, you mm-hmm. know, and sometimes that path of least resistance is not necessarily the most favorable path. And an example of the pathways resistance in financial planning might be a basic, like paying yourself first. Well, maybe it's easier to have that self-gratification and go spend it on the flashy object that's out there in the window. Mm-hmm. So having that accountability and working towards your future self and the best version of that, if there's a relationship there, there's strong accountability when you and I connect over an annual review and we say, hey, this is what we're doing mathematically to hit these goals. 
that quantitative component there, how do you feel about that? So that's a different level of accountability oftentimes I think that you get mm -hmm. with just working through uh, any type of robo-advising or doing it on your own. Now, I think that there are some people out there that have that internal accountability that they could do it themselves. But I think typically you want that setup to accomplish these long-term goals, mm -hmm. relationship or accountability setup. Yeah. Is. I like that you said accountability because it's similar with things like when you're working on your fitness and you have a personal trainer or if you're, yeah, or if you're trying to hit certain goals in your business, you hire a business coach. And so it's like, why do we do those things to help us with the accountability and also to have someone advise us because we don't know everything. And unless we're in the same industry, I mean, even then we would still always want somebody else's opinion because it's always better to be with someone who knows more than you and knows that industry. And so it's like, to me, you're my financial advisor and you're the expert in your industry. So would I listen to myself right. to decide these things for my financial future or would I get your advice? Yeah. Great yeah. point. Uh, I'll, I'll mention this. My team, we work with actually quite a few traders around the country uh, that are on trading floors, whether they're, you know, at shell oil commodities or, you know, strewn across the land. Um, and I think to myself, wow, these people really have an ear to the ground floor. What's going on financially if they're working on a trading floor of some sort, whether, in, you know, here in San Diego or out in Washington you know, state. Um, but when they are not doing what they do, they want to go spend time with their family meaning what they're not doing professionally, they want to go spend that time that they have, that extra time with their family, doing other things oftentimes outside of finance. So many of the clients that we work with today, their financial literacy is very high, I would say. And they are certainly smart enough and successful enough to figure out what I do and how I do it, yet they're not willing to put the time that my mm -hmm. team's willing to put in to figure out a solution, a plan, and keep that accountable. And having that as a backdrop where they're quarterbacking the situation really helps the overall team come together and figure out, okay, how do we get this ship moving? You can right. do it yourself, but are right. you willing to put that time in to get this thing started? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that's not the case. It's very tough to scale. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's helpful to have your help. And so, and I have discussed this, that how much you've helped me and my husband build a strong financial portfolio individually. And now as a married couple mm -hmm. and the importance of having a strong financial plan to help us set up our future now together. So let's get into these financial terms to help educate all our listeners mm -hmm. on which financial vehicles may be the best for them. So let's begin with what are some key components of a strong financial plan? Mm, uh, yeah, great. Uh, great initial question on that. Uh, I, I think two things are helpful to think about there. Number one is a defense. And number two would be an offense to a portfolio. And when we think about that, the best way to think about it is a sports analogy. You know, oftentimes your offense is only as good as your defense. I believe that in finance as well. And so if you're focused on the defensive side of planning, we're really focused on protecting what you really, really care about in life. And oftentimes that comes in the form of insurance planning. Now on the offensive side, oftentimes that's what we refer to as investment planning and that's growing and accumulating wealth. So I think uh, philosophy wise, when we think about financial planning, it's gonna encompass 
both a combination of offense and defense. Where you're at in your life as an individual, married couple, business owner, that dictates what you care about most, both in the defensive arena, but also offensively. And a defensive, defensive example might be this, you know, relevant right now. If you're a business owner and you do not have an income anymore because either you're sick or injured, but you have a mortgage out here or two and you're married with two to three children, let's just say, for instance, how much money do you have coming in the door if something was to happen to you? That's a real question. And there's no right or wrong to it. But defensively, if somebody has not addressed that, how are you going to do anything about it reactively? Now, that's a real problem going on in the landscape today. But that question is different defensively and not right or wrong. If you ask somebody who's 25 years old and single with no children, no mortgage, and AKA, that's an idea of disability insurance protecting your income. Not right or wrong, but different depending on what circumstance you're going through in life and what you have at stake, what you really, really care about. Mm. Yeah. And I know a lot of people think when they're working with a company, they get a 401k. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. they think, oh, you know, I'm okay with my future for my finances because I have my 401k. Right, right. So can you explain first what a 401k is? And is that really enough to prepare us for retirement? Yeah, another really great question, uh, especially um, right now. <laughs> now, a 401k in its most simplistic, straightforward answer is going to be an employer-sponsored tax advantage plan. Oftentimes you'll hear about it as a qualified or tax favorable instrument. And essentially what that means is it qualifies for favorable tax treatment, number one. And when we think about a 401k, how does that qualify for favorable tax treatment? Well, a traditional 401k, an employer-sponsored plan, will take money out of somebody's paycheck and put it into this bucket called a 401k pre-tax, meaning no taxes were paid on that money up front. So that's a huge win up front, right? No, no taxes were paid on this money. We took dollars out of your paycheck and we put it in this 401k, which you're able to invest in the capital market space. Now, there's another aspect of this 401k that's very helpful is it lowers your tax liability. We didn't pay any taxes on this up front. And let's use an easy example. If somebody makes $100,000 and they dump $10,000 into a 401k, well, their tax liability, and using this example, they're going to deduct $10,000 from that top line item of $100,000. So inevitably, they're only paying taxes on $90,000. That's a huge win. No taxes up front, lowered your tax liability. We put money into the capital market space, the stock market, for it to grow. And that's that last aspect of a 401k. As it grows, not only the basis, what you dumped in there is not taxed, but neither is the growth and it compounds. So that idea of compounding interest is the snowball effect. So if you start pushing a snowball down a hill, eventually it starts to roll all by itself. That's what a 401k does. Now, the caveat is you're going to need to pay taxes when? <laughs> When, when you, you take, take it, it out, when yeah. you take the money out. And the magic number is you have access to a 401k at 59 and a half. So it's a fantastic instrument to grow and accumulate wealth through an employer sponsored plan in a compounding tax efficient format. Is it enough? Well, it depends on how much money you want to live on really is what, what that's going to back into. And here's a great hack for everybody 
to think about. So there's a law or rule of 72 out there. And some people might know what this is, but essentially if you take 72 and you think about that as the numerator, let's pick a growth rate of this 401k and let's pick 10% as an example. So that would be the denominator. If you take 72 as the numerator, 10% as the denominator and divide that spits out 7.2. Well, what does that mean? 7.2. 7.2 is, we're going to round and call it seven. That's how many years it takes for your money to double. So the law of 72 addresses in a compounding interest vehicle, like a 401k or an IRA, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. How many years does it take to double? And in that example, let's think about that and just draw this point home. Let's say you were 25 years old and you had 100,000. And somebody says, how does a 25-year-old get 100,000 in a 401k? Well, it's doable. And let's just run with the number. Let's say at 25, you had $100,000 in the 401k. And you never dumped another dime into it. Never. And every seven years, your money is going to double. Well, let's think about somebody retiring at age 65. So 25 to age 65 is 40 years. It's about not quite six intervals of seven doubling, but we're going to call it round down five. And you'll see where we're going with this. So one interval, 100,000 moving to 200,000 in seven years, right? That's one, 200,000. 200 turns into four. 400,000 turns into 800,000. It's three, right? 800,000 turns into 1.6. 1.6 turns into, right, 3.2. So if somebody had 100,000 in a compounding interest account like a 401k early enough in the game, well, we could easily back into some of that math and say, is $3.2 million enough for you to live on in retirement? You know, and if you live maybe, <laughs> you know, in some areas around the world, maybe so. We're out filming this here in Southern California, San Diego to be specific. So maybe that's going to be tough for somebody right. to live on the lifestyle that they're used to. But that would be the short answer to your question. You know, I don't think a 401k is is myopically the only solution that people should be looking at. Mm -hmm. There are many things that a 401k does not address. For instance, what happens when the stock market goes down? Mm -hmm. Do you want to take money out of the account? Probably not. What happens if tax liability is higher in the future? Do you want to take money out of a taxed account? Probably not. So a 401k is not everything, but it sure can get you really well prepared and positioned for that long run retirement curve. And I know too, you've said with a 401k, if their company does match that you should take advantage of the match. Right. Right. And, uh, that's almost, we don't want to say it's a no-brainer, but it's about as close as it's going to get to a no-brainer. If somebody, an employer-sponsored plan out there, is going to throw you free money for you to go dump money into a tax-efficient vehicle that grows you money anyways and lowers your taxes, um, that might be something that you would like to consider, right? Yes. Yeah, very much so. Good point. Yeah. yeah. And then because you were talking about IRAs, so let's talk about yeah. what is an IRA. So an IRA, very similar to a 401k, uh, acts just like it, except not an employer-sponsored plan, but an IRA stands for an individual retirement account. So typically, an IRA is going to have a, a much smaller contribution limit to it. And there are different types of IRAs out there. There are ones that you could save after tax, which is called a Roth IRA. So you could say, well, I'm in a low tax liability today. I don't want to pay my tax in the future. I'd like to pay them today. So in figuring out who you're in front of, when we meet with somebody, 
we address where their tax liability is, how much money they're making that really is the determining factor on how much money they dump into a 401k versus a traditional IRA versus, let's say, something like a Roth or a simple or even SEP IRA out there for some of these business owners that we work with. Yeah. So it's going to be different for every person right. based on their goals. That's right. Yeah. Uh, a tax-favorable way to compound interest in the stock market, in the capital market space, just like a 401k, but for an individual. And then the last thing I would say about that is an IRA is not only an accumulation tool, like a 401k, you're accumulating wealth. But in addition to that, it's a distribution vehicle. So when you get into those retirement years, chances are, hopefully, you're probably not distributing from 401ks. Maybe you might have 10 over your working lifetime at these different companies and trying to <laughs> trying to figure out how to juggle all these, these uh, 401ks and distributing this wealth to yourself. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, you're going to consolidate that into an IRA. And that IRA will act as a distribution vehicle in your retirement years to push that capital back to you so that you can live on. And that's actually something that Devin helped me with. So I used to work for a corporate company and right. I had my 401k. And so when I transitioned to be in freelance, Devin helped me convert my 401k into an IRA. That's right. So he can help you with that too. Just so you know, if you have a 401k and you are planning to leave a company, don't worry, you won't lose it. You know, you can Great put point. it, you can keep everything together, which is nice too with a financial portfolio. If you have other investments in other places, we can consolidate it to keep it in one place as you're advising us. Is that right? Uh, very much so. And typically when you leave a company and you don't plan on coming back, you want to do that house cleaning work as soon as possible and figure out what to do with that nest egg. Because if you're no longer working there, Mm -hmm. and you can't contribute to it. Right. And the investment is limited in terms of selection and there's an administrative fee and cost going on there. Those are all really great reasons aside from eventually needing to consolidate it to distribute wealth to yourself in the future. Those are all really powerful reasons as to really jump on that sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we see coming back into one of these, these questions that you had asked is when we uh, meet somebody for the first time or we're holding a review with clients of ours, we ask, have you left the company recently? And sometimes when people say, yes, I have, we do that cleanup work to take care of that 401k, consolidate into IRA, but we uncover that they have left four or five 401ks out there over the last 10 years. So that's an example where things get busy for people in their life, I always think about, and they don't take care of some of that stuff. And some of that stuff could come back to bite you if you're not proactive on mm -hmm. consolidating that and getting into a proper investment, uh, actual portfolio, in that case, an IRA. And then another thing with companies, um, some of them will offer, you know, a life insurance policy. And I do want to mm -hmm. talk about what a life insurance policy is mm -hmm. and that, you know, again, if you leave the company, you can't take their life insurance policy with you. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. And many people actually don't know that. So life insurance through an employer sponsored plan is a non-portable plan. And in some ways, very similar to the conversation that we're having about a 401k. It's non-portable. Mm -hmm. You could roll that into an IRA, but you can't take the 401k with you. Mm -hmm. And so life insurance and specifically most employer sponsored plan term insurance policies are what people are familiar with. And we'll get into likely talking about the difference between term and permanent insurance but a life insurance policy through an employer-sponsored plan gives you a roof over your head for a period of time. And that period of time is dictated 
on your employment status with the company. Yeah. Generally one to two times income, generally, as a rule of thumb. And then, so let's talk about life insurance, whole life. Mm -hmm. So good point again. Uh, to take a quick step back, so there are two types, and this is helpful for everybody to understand, and there's no right or wrong, but there are only two houses of life insurance out there, only two. You could get on the first page of Google and you could see like a hundred different types of life insurance and the names regard. It's, it's almost overwhelming, right? But there's only two to make it really simple for the audience to understand. And this is, I think the content that people should really know before getting, you know, down and dirty with what type of life insurance policy of the type of, of term versus permanent, which are the two houses of life insurance. There's a million different derivatives that matters less than addressing the big picture of term versus permanent life insurance. So term whole life, by the way, is a type of permanent life insurance. Okay. Term insurance though, to start out is what you would have through an employer sponsored plan and term insurance is giving you coverage over your head for a certain period of time, very analogous to renting a house. So if you rent a house, you get a roof over your head for a period of time. But whenever you make that rent payment, it's actually a sunk cost. You don't have any equity coming back to you in that home. You don't own the home. Mm -hmm. So term insurance is great because it provides a lot of roof over your head for a relatively little amount of money that you outlay. And that's the win on term insurance. So for instance, somebody who might be uh, married with a couple children, as we had talked about, what they care about in the form of life insurance is making sure that they have a big roof over their head. And so term insurance oftentimes is a great solution for that. Now, permanent life insurance, which is the exact opposite of term insurance, it's not renting a house, it's owning your own house. So most of the time, not necessarily here in California, <laughs> Mike would know a little bit about this, not necessarily here in California, but most of the time, owning your own home is more expensive than renting, okay? And with that, when you own your own home, you get that roof over your head in terms of permanent life insurance, permanently, hence the name, versus renting or term insurance is gonna run out. So that's one of the reasons why it's more expensive, owning your own home. The insurance company actuarially is baking into the equation, thinking that they're gonna pay that life insurance out at some point. That's number one. Uh, the difference between term and permanent insurance. Permanent is guaranteed to pay out. Now, permanent insurance also grows and accumulates wealth, and that's referred to as cash value. So typically people think about permanent life insurance interchangeably with whole life insurance. Now, whole life insurance says this, we're gonna grow and accumulate that equity with inside a policy, and we're gonna tie that to the general account of an insurance company so that the insured does not bear the investment risk of accumulating that equity within a policy. Now you can do the same thing and somebody might say, no, I'd like to bear that investment risk, meaning the insured. And you could go and say, well, fine, we could do that. That's called a variable policy, for instance, mm -hmm. where you would go into the stock market and that's what would build the equity. Now somebody might be saying, well, why don't you just go do that in the stock market anyways? Mm -hmm. Well, hold the phone. And here's where permanent life insurance is a very important component to address in somebody's financial toolkit. Life insurance predates the federal tax code. 
and it predates the stock market here in the United States, which roughly both of them have been around for about 100 years. These great strong insurance companies have been around for over 150 years. So they've been doing this long before the stock market, long before the federal tax code. And I think one of the things that's unique is these life insurance contracts or policies. The reason why people dump so much money into permanent life insurance in particular is because they are tax efficient. So when you dump money into a permanent life insurance policy, whether it's tied to the stock market, growing and accumulating wealth, or whether it's tied to the general account of an insurance company, whole life, the cash value or equity that grows in the policy grows tax favorably. And you could extract or take out the money that you put in tax favorably as well. And in most cases, tax-free. So that's a little bit about term versus permanent. Not right or wrong. Term insurance is generally less expensive and gives you a lot of roof over your head, but is renting an insurance contract. Permanent insurance, you are financing and owning the contract outright. Right. And you build equity along the way that you could utilize in this life versus the actual death benefit, which would be paid out tax-free upon passing. And would you advise for um, when people are starting a family and they're having yeah. young kids, if they have the means to start a life insurance policy, whole life permanent, when they're babies? Would you advise? Mm. Let me make sure I understand the question that you're asking. Uh, that the parents start their permanent insurance planning for themselves or design a permanent life insurance contract for their child? For their child. Ah, yeah, good question. <clears throat> So if we think about permanent life insurance, you know, the joke in financial planning is when's the best time to buy insurance yesterday, right? And the reason behind that is, is most of us, and we think about actuarially how life insurance is underwritten, how the cost of a contract's underwritten by a company, it's two major variables. And one of them is your age. So somebody who's zero or one years old, just being born, they're winning in that space. The second, actually, on an underwriting standpoint, is addressing their health class. So most people who are younger are going to be healthier than they're ever going to be. Now, not necessarily. You know, you could actually be healthier when you're older as well. You may be born unhealthy. and In that case, maybe you become healthy later on. But typically, mm -hmm. stereotypically, most people are younger yesterday than they're ever going to be. And they're mostly healthier than they're ever going to be. Mm -hmm. So designing a permanent life insurance contract uh, is oftentimes an instrument that is utilized in financial planning to start somebody, let's say a little one, on a compounding tax favorable interest curve. And the parents control and own that policy and fund that and are able to hand that off to a child when they determine that child is ready to take that payment on. Cool story about that. I had actually just passed on a life insurance policy that I've been funding for 10 years, a permanent life insurance policy, to my brother, who is 27 years old now, 26 actually. And he just finished uh, flight school out in Texas and is married out there. And so he has a great job, a great income, flying planes out with the Navy. And he is, from an income standpoint, more than ready and capable to take this on. So it was an incredible gift that I pass on to him. And there's roughly $15,000 in that tax-free that he has access to. Wow. So for a young married guy, you know, coming into a gift like that, he funds it by $100 a month in this case, which we've been funding over the last 10 years by $100 a month. 
pass it on to him. Well, this next year, if he funds it by $100 a month or $1,200 annualized, it grows by $1,600 guaranteed that year. Now, if you think about that for a second, this is really impactful because in the stock market, there's a free fall that just happened. We're talking again in 2020. The stock market just went down. Well, if you have a segment of your wealth that's guaranteed to grow, it really sheds a different light and look on the rest of your portfolio, like funding 401ks, IRAs, things that are tied to the capital market space. And you don't feel as concerned about the ebbs and flows in that space because you know that you have something safe and conservative guaranteed. Right. So in that case, uh, I would say what a fantastic instrument to be able to pass along because from a finance standpoint, now he has an asset that's growing tax favorably for him that's guaranteed to grow that he has liquid accessibility to borrow or take out from. Wow, what a great gift. Yeah, you know, really. That was so nice of yeah, you. Yeah, so don't spend it all on <laughs> And um, something that I want to talk about, too, is when Devin and I first started working together, he knows he'll remember this. I'm a really good saver. I've been saving ever since I was a little kid. And so I had a big savings account. And so something that Devin educated me on is, but my money's not making me much money sitting in the savings account. And it's not actually good for all of the savings that I had to sit in my savings account. And so Devin educated me on putting majority of my savings into my brokerage account. So let's talk about what a brokerage account is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that as well. Uh, And I think, you know, before we even get into that, I think it's helpful to address the landscape that we're talking today Um, was actually a very similar landscape that we were talking back in the day, roughly eight, nine years ago. And what I mean by that is the interest rate environment. So here in 2020, the Federal Reserve had lowered interest rates to, and this word I know is going out of style right now, unprecedented. Well, they really did. They lowered it to an unprecedented rate, meaning zero to a quarter percent. That's never been done before, actually. And that's where that, you know, really that phrase of unprecedented really fits today. That's never been done. Well, the last time the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates was on the heels of the housing crisis that we were in in 2008. I came into this business in 2009, met you probably in 2010 or 11, somewhere in that zone. And we started working together. Well, What had happened in 2008 as a response to the housing crisis is the Federal Reserve said, oh my gosh, what tools do we have in our toolkit? One of them was to lower interest rates. And what does that do? Lowering interest rates in some ways is a huge benefit because when you lower interest rates, it spurs borrowing and lending. If you're able to finance a home instead of 5% at 2.5% or 3%, that's more favorable over 30 years, say for instance, right? Right. But what does it also do on the flip side negatively to us? Well, if you leave a dollar that would be a money market instrument, like a check-in and savings account or a CD, in that account, when the interest rate environment has gone down, well, there's no return on your investment because there's no margin there for a bank to say, okay, we're going to promise you 2% on your money in the CD. That's not present anymore with the low interest rate environment. So similarly, back in 2008, 2009, the Federal Reserve in response to the crisis, that was a housing crisis. Today we have an infectious disease crisis, but the response was very similar. They had lowered interest rates and it took them roughly 
10 years to get interest rates back and then infectious disease crisis. And they hit it with a bazooka this time around. And that's a phrase that's been thrown around a lot. It took them really a year and a half to two years back in 08, 09 mm -hmm. to work on compressing interest rates. This go around, they compressed it in one fell swoop. They said, all right, we're going down to zero to a quarter percent. So that leaves us, you know, in, in this conversation regarding a brokerage account in an interesting position with mm -hmm. a checking and savings account with a bunch of cash in it, similar right. to back in the day when we were talking about this. Right. We can't make any money in a checking and savings account. And furthermore, what else did we do back then and today? This concept of quantitative easing, which, you know, in political news and economic news is thrown around like, uh, like it's going out of style. People talk about quantitative easing. Well, what does that mean? Well, quantitative easing means that we're lowering interest rates as the Federal Reserve is doing and simultaneously printing money. So those are the two levers that they have at their disposal. So we're lowering interest rates, economically speaking, and actually printing money, which we've printed trillions of dollars right now. What is the macroeconomic effect of that? Well, printing money causes inflation, the cost of goods and services going up over time. How are we going to deal with that? Well, in the future, we're probably going to pay more in taxes, right? But what does it mean for us right now? Well, if we've printed a bunch of money and the cost of goods and services are going up, meaning inflation is getting higher, and also interest rates are depressed and at uh, all-time low rates, it makes it a very tough environment because not only are we not making money, but we might be losing more than negative 3% on an annualized basis because the cost of goods and services are going up. So for instance, let's say inflation was at 3% on an annualized basis. And let's say you held that cash in your account from when we met to now. And let's just play that out. And let's just say it was 10 years, right? Let's just say well, negative three over 10 years, that's negative 30%, right? Mm -hmm. Well, hold the phone for a second. Compounding interest works not only in accumulating wealth like this, but inflation is compounding as well. So that's not negative 30%. That's been compounding negatively in that account, say, for instance. So that's probably closer to negative 40% or greater over 10 years. That's why when we address cash in somebody's account today, coming back to your question mm -hmm. on a brokerage account, what is that? It what is that? We got to figure out when do they need that capital? When do they need that cash? And if they plan on using it the next three, six, even twelve months or eighteen months, then it's advisable to keep that in cash because that idea of inflation isn't going to really take its toll on that money and start to ax that down. That, that value of that dollar is worth something. But above and beyond 12 months, 18 months, two years, with the low interest rate environment, high inflationary environment, we have to figure out a way to achieve a yield that is not gonna erode the buying power of the cash that you have. So a brokerage account is a non-qualified, meaning a non-retirement account, that you could place that cash in and you could buy mutual funds, stocks, bonds, or a combination thereof. And you could come up with a strategy based on your risk tolerance, mm -hmm. right? How comfortable yes. you are with assessing risk and a time horizon that makes sense to achieve a greater growth rate, let's say the negative 3%. So that's where a brokerage account is. It's a non-retirement account. You could touch it whenever you want. But generally speaking, in today's environment and landscape, that's going to be an idea of 18-month 
two year, even three to five year plus money where you're not looking to extract those dollars or distribute them to yourself, that's the checking and savings dollars for anything under 18 months. Brokerage account might be identified for the next three to five years or two to three years to grow and accumulate wealth. Yeah, it's so helpful. I'm so helpful. I'm so glad you told me about it, you know, yeah. when I did, because I just, I can't imagine if my money was majority, you know, was still in my savings for this amount of years that we've been working right. together. That would have been yeah. a, a certain, certainly, certainly erosion of buying power. Yes. That's for sure. yeah. And is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners today to educate them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's a great question as well. And in, in closing this up, I would share uh, I would share a tidbit of information with them uh, in terms of where my team and our thought process on uh, is at today and what we're seeing in the marketplace with business owners that we work with. And I think the best way to put it is whatever you're thinking about in your given business or your given life. And let's ask you to think as big as you could think. Whatever that is, if you could take a minute and if you could identify, you know, quantitatively what that might mean in terms of revenue or, or growth in a business, fantastic. But whatever that is in your own time, if you could think about being big in your life and playing big, put that right here and pause for a second and sleep on it. The next day, what you need to be focused on and you need to be considering is how you take that thought, which was your biggest thought yesterday and turn that into something bigger. So the advice or the lasting commentary that's out there for these business owners in an environment like today is there's a lot of market share to be had out there in any industry. If you could think big, pause that, and then think bigger than that, that would be the lasting advice that I would push on down the road right now in the river. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Devin. And where can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, fortunately, nobody has my name. So Devin, D-E-V-I-N, Deverell, D-E-V-E-R-I-L-L. Type it in any search bar and I'll come up. Thank you so much, Devin, for being here today and for educating all of us more. Thank Thank you. you. If you would like to book a free financial planning consultation with Devin, please contact him today by going to his website, D-D-E-V-E-R-I-L-L dot N-M dot com. Again, that is D-D-E-V-E-R-I-L-L dot N-M dot com. And again, his name is Devin Larson Deverell. Thank you so much for joining me on the Design Your Happiness podcast. I appreciate you for listening and I hope you feel inspired. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your loved ones. I hope you have a beautiful day and get excited to design your happiness.